Today on the podcast, I sit down with Carol Ward. Carol is a missionary to Northern Uganda, South Sudan, and she's working in some of the most dire situations on earth. Um, she shares some stories in this podcast that might shake you up a little bit. They did me. Um, she's going to talk a lot about um, spiritual warfare in a way that I have never heard before in my life. And I'm here to tell you, though, that this story is highly inspirational. And what you're going to see out of this sweet Carol is that she is a mighty warrior and she's right in the thick of it and that God's in the business of winning these types of battles. And so I hope you're encouraged by this podcast. We were still seeing about a thousand people a day die with fam famine, starvation, and ambushes. So when I moved into northern Uganda, knowing that that was the very center of immense demonic darkness, because people were saying this is not just a political war or tribal war, this is a spiritual war. And um, so started praying. I mean, how else are you going to fight darkness except turn the light on? So so got a little house in Gulu that had bullet holes in it, and they wouldn't let me live in the camps. I was a security risk, but I could rent a small house in the town of Gulu, which had just been a bloodbath prior to that. And uh, some uh, Choli Africans moved in with me, a couple and their kids, and, and that became our first house of prayer. And so that prayer led then to what we, we did in the, in the stadium, which was a national prayer gathering. And uh, six months of praying in that little house, seven days a week, you know, three hours a day uh, in the morning and the evening, when we had the national prayer gathering in the stadium, uh, which was another miracle because they wouldn't let us have the stadium. They, it was used for demonic rituals. Uh, we fasted and prayed for 40 days just to get the stadium. And then we called the nation together saying, if God's word is true, Second Chronicles 7.14 is just as true. And that if we as his people will humble, pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, he will heal the land. So we did that. We did that for a week and uh, eight hours a day. And we read the scripture, prayed for the land, read the scripture, prayed for the land. I say we, it was all the nationals. So I set up the scriptures, they did it. And at the end of that week, uh, with weeping and crying out to God, it was truly a Second Chronicles 714 demonstration. The government offices called me and said, are you that crazy white lady praying in that stadium? I said, yes, but I wasn't alone. And I said, why? And they said, because it feels like there's a curtain that's been pulled back in the, in the atmosphere over the whole region. And, and the whole feeling, atmosphere has changed. That was the beginning of the war ending. We didn't have any ambushes after that. And uh, of course, revival exploded. Oh my goodness. So, okay, well, so much to talk about here. First of all, um, I'm familiar with Sam Childers. I watched his yeah. movie uh, on a flight somewhere, The Machine Gun Preacher. And I remember that was a, it felt like a, a wonderful solution to the horrible problem of Coney. You know, this just pent up aggression towards such evil. And here goes a guy in with a machine gun. He's going to take this guy out. Well, um, the story ends differently, but that tends to be our natural response to evil. And here comes this white blonde woman from the United States into the center of, I mean, it's the center of hell basically on earth. Um, what was it like your first few days there? Were you alone? Were you, did you feel supported? Were you, how, what was that like? Well, 
having gone north, knowing that the U.S. Embassy had crossed me off of their list as being already dead, uh, you know, and telling me not to go and no mission organization would support me because I'll come home in a body bag, they said. I went alone. And so I was alone when I got there. And the first thing I have to do is check in with the security and say, and I told them I want to live in the camps. Horrific suffering, no latrines, one water hole to 5,000 people, diseases of cholera, epidemic, uh, things of HIV and TB and starvation. And they said, no. Are these refugee camps? Or yes, IDP camps. IDP, internally, internally displaced yes, people. Yes, okay. And so we had uh, 15,000 in the smallest to 75,000 people packed in like animals in the largest camp. That's where I wanted to live with the immense suffering. I wanted to feel what the people had been feeling. I wanted to identify with them, weep with them, you know, embrace them. And, and security said, you can go back and forth during the day, but you can't live there because of the security risks. So I got a little house in Gulu. It had bullet holes in the wall and everything, but that's where I settled. And then this Acholi family uh, moved in with me at that time. So you weren't alone, alone, but tell me like, were you able to have contact with your family? Were you, I mean, just walk me through the first 24 hours of being there. What was that uh, like? I had a little Nokia phone, <laughs> uh, which I still use by the way. And, um, when we get reception, so if there's electricity, which was very scarce there, and I didn't have solar, and then network was scarce, and you have to buy airtime, and I was living on potatoes and water and grasshoppers, which which I shared with the people, so buying airtime, uh, and in that first 24 hours, I never felt alone because when I was going north in that six-hour drive in the vehicle, Jesus visited me. And he baptized me in love that casts out fear, as 1 John 4, 18 says. I've never had fear since, and I knew he had given me a baptism of love. And I knew that he was going ahead of me. And so, but I, but I was alone in a sense of um, culturally, I never saw another Westerner for several years. Very isolated, very much feeling alone. But of course, in your in your spirit, you know you're not alone. But in my mind, thinking, what am I doing here? What am I going to do next? So, but God and but pray. That's the only thing I knew to do. You see, this sounds crazy. You know that, right? Yes. I, I know you share your story <laughs> and you, you've yeah. lived this life, obviously. But I mean, for those of us who just attend church weekly and, you know, read our Bibles here and there and pray here and there, like, like this is different. This is, this is radical. And, uh, talk to me a little bit about the baptism of love. I want to know like more about that. It's, I've never heard that before. So, yeah. Well, as I was in the car, I'm waiting for ambushes to jump out of the right or the left in the bush, you know, and it was a confusing war because when the rebels and the LRA would jump out, they would kill UPDF soldiers, put on their uniforms and look military clad. You didn't have a clue whether they were rebels. Or... So this is the kind of guerrilla war. They come out, mow you down with AK-47s, burn your vehicle, and they're gone before anybody can respond. And so I'm driving along in the car, knowing this happens every single day, and I'm going on a six-hour drive through this territory by myself at the, you know, suggestion that the embassy said I don't go. And I'm, right, and I'm praying as I look right, left, right, left, praying hard, fighting fear. And the Lord says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm obeying you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. So I'm having this conversation with Father God. 
And um, and I said, why am I not obeying you? I'm going. He said, uh, yes, you are, but I never sent anybody out in fear. I can't use you in fear. It'll paralyze you. It will torment you, and you're already defeated. So I said, okay, then give me more faith. He said, you don't need any more faith. You're going. You're obeying. And, and I said, well, what on earth do I need? How am I going to fight this kind of immense fear? Because our front page newspaper had depicted every single day in Uganda the worst pictures of chopped bodies you can imagine. That was our daily papers. And so that's implanted in your mind. I said, what do I need? He said, you don't have enough love. He said, and he's reading the Bible to me. The Lord does that a lot. So he turned to 1 John four eighteen. perfect love casts out fear. Fear has torment. I said, oh, then I need more love. He said, if you have enough love for the people you're going to reach and embrace and die for, and you have enough love for me, you'll never have fear again. Because all of a sudden, their life becomes more important than yours. And it's about them, not you. And I said, oh, Lord, baptize me in love. And I remember weeping so hard in the car as he overwhelmed me with like an ocean of love. And I couldn't wait to see the people, hug them. I was like, I'm going to be united to lost, long lost family. That's how I felt. And it, and it was just the baptism of love. I was weeping so hard I could hardly drive. But I've never had fear again since. And, and I face bullets and ambushes and wars, you know, go through where security says you can't go there. And I go. And, um, and so they still call me the crazy white lady. <laughs> but, but I have no fear because I love the people I'm going to touch uh, more than my life. Brother Andrew's a hero of mine. And um, he's uh, it, it, just because I, I know his story so well. And so much of what you're saying is reminiscent of his life and, and just his radical calling, his faithfulness to go. And we asked Brother Andrew um, how he relates to God as he relates to persecuted people. And he says, well, it's easy. I, you know, I, I wake up at the wee hours of the morning and I begin to pray because when I pray to God, I get God's heart for my friends. And when I have, I have God's heart for my friends, then yeah, I go into these crazy places of which you go and I don't carry fear. And it just sounds so foreign to, uh, I mean, uh, to all of us who, who are consume news and who uh, are well aware of Sudan. It's, it's one of the, you know, one of the toughest places in the world and, and you're just planted right in the middle of it. So you've been there 18 years? 18 years. Wow. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about your growing up because this isn't brand new to you. You're familiar with radical missions activity. Would you tell us a little bit about your grandparents and your upbringing? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I just was, uh, I call it call of the wild because I was just in the jungles of the Philippines as a little kid, um, barefoot and running around and th thinking, uh, Lord, this is how I want to serve you and die. So it was in my blood from a child, I, my yearning to go take Jesus where he had never been preached or heard of before. But my, my grandparents were missionaries in China for 30 years and um, Presbyterian missions. And my grandfather was an orthopedic surgeon in Beijing, Shanghai area. And when communism came into the nation, they were uh, imprisoned. 
as um, war prisoners. And so my mom, having been born there, speaking Mandarin, those were her childhood memories uh, at POW. And so they were in prison camp, and then they got out as exchange prisoners. So... um, she didn't have any fear. She talked about going to school, to the little British school in Shanghai and walking through bodies, dead bodies on the road. And, you know, the bombs were like July 4th. And I said, wasn't grandma scared? And she said, no. Um, she trusted God for our life and she was going to serve him till death. Had no fear. Fear is contagious. It is. And if fear is contagious, I think faith is more contagious. Uh, you're right, yeah. <laughs> so she just walked to school every day like that. And, and, and then, of course, when they got captured as a family, uh, you know, peaceful. And we could write another whole story about that because Eric Little died in those prison camps of chariots of fire. My grandfather was separated from them, reunited on the ship, you know, and they thought he had he was dead. So so anyway, she, she was fearless. And when she and my dad married and said, we're going with Wycliffe Bible translators, well, they drop you off in the middle of a jungle, sometimes really Stone Age or cannibals like Jim Elliott. And um, you live like the people, dress like the people, talk like the people, and so on and so forth, adapt everything in their culture except for their religion in order to reach them. And so in Mindanao jungles of the Philippines, the Abu Sayyaf sector of Islam, which was high terrorism, um, then we didn't have that use that word at the time, ISIS. Um, but those kids were my playmates. Their children were my were my best friends, and we ran around the village together and didn't know to fear. And uh, and there was a price on my dad's head for for forty five years, and that bring us his head on a plate as John the Baptist, and, there, and we'll give you a price. So because he was bringing the translated Gospels of John slowly, slowly, as he was working through the whole Bible, and the imam said, we'll go blind if you read this. So then bring us this guy's head. We never left our villages. We never ran, except when God would wake him up in the middle of the night and say, the village is going to be grenaded, get out. And he put his family in a jeep, don't argue with God. Neither did Joseph when an angel said, Herod's decapitating, get Jesus out of here. And that's how he lived. And he lived by the voice of God. I learned that. At a young a, age. As a child. So you know nothing other than. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Unreal. Okay. So you're, you're, I've been to Mindanao. I've been in those parts of the world. In fact, I had, uh, I, I was, after I'd been working in the Middle East, um, I was, I was given a trip, put on assignment to uh, the Philippines. I just thought, oh, that's going to be a walk in the park compared to what, you know, dodging ISIS in, in, in Iraq and Syria and those places. And so we go and they said, no, ISIS is right there. And I go, oh my goodness. I was wearing uh, camouflage shorts, like, like surf trunks. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. like, they weren't real camouflage. They said, you can't wear those here. And uh, they'll mistake you for. So anyways, um, that's unbelievable. I was unaware at how, how difficult a place the South Philippines was, and that's where you grew up. So transition us from growing up in Mindanao to going to Sudan, those in-between years. Okay. I, well, I had worked in Oklahoma as a nurse and did foster care, heroin addicts, street children, uh, all kinds of ministries, did leadership development, never knowing that those would be the stepping stones to prepare me for God was where God was taking me. At and during all those years of, of nursing and watching heroin addicts come out of deep Satanism and the occult and, and seeing them set free, I was always praying, but God, I want to go to the places that have never, never heard Jesus. And if you ever use me there, use me in death. 
I would read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Those were my bedtime stories. And so um, I said, send me anywhere in the world you need me where no one else wants to go. That's a dangerous prayer. That's a dangerous prayer. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a serious prayer, and God took took me seriously. So that was the abandonment I felt, which I feel like is really the call of discipleship. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So when I got an invitation to, to uh, lead a school in Uganda, it was a Kampala area. It was a Bible school of uh, Africans from five East African nations, and a missionary needed a sabbatical for a year and um, had met me for one day and said, will you come run the Bible school campus for a year? And I'm thinking, sure, yeah, Sounds great. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't the place where no one wanted to go. That's right. So I knew yeah. it wasn't going to be my stopping yeah. place. But I accepted that invitation when he picked me up from the airport. You know, he said, here's the keys. Here's 150 students, 80 acres. Bye. I'm out of here. That was my orientation. So I learned two things. First of all, I better listen to the people and learn from them how to lead them. Secondly, the Holy Spirit can teach you everything you need to know, as John 14 and 16 says. So I heavily depended on that. And And I had a wonderful time. We had revival that broke out on the campus that year because I called an Esther fast and all the students went to prayer for their nations and their country and their people and their tribes. And God just absolutely fell on that campus. That's another whole book, you know, but it was mighty. And so then they kept saying after that year was coming to an end, please, will you come to our nation? Please, will you come? And when I started listening to the stories of the northern Uganda, the Acholi, and the Sudanese weeping, why do you want me to come? You have had revival, now go and take it to your people. And they said, we need help. We've been in war. I didn't know there was a war going on in the north because it was hidden. And they said, uh, everybody's evacuated. They've abandoned. They've left us. Nobody cares. Please, will you come? Then I knew that was the place no one wanted to go. And so that started my journey. And after opening the house of prayer in Gulu, as I said, when God baptized me, baptized me in love and and um, and and moved in there it was that was about 2003 and then in 2007 I started in Sudan and uh, took the nationals from northern Uganda with me now because they were not as missionaries as missionaries wow yeah because I'd been you know pouring into their lives after the war stopped God said serve their vision because I thought my job's over. Well, we pray, Lord, if the war's over. And he said, no, it's just beginning. Serve another man's vision. It's not about you. It's about them. And healing is not only physical. I saw that. It's not only spiritual. I saw that. It's not only mental and emotional, but it's healing of destiny and healing of purpose. So many people lose direction because they've lost their purpose. Or they lose purpose because they have no direction. And when you're coming out of a war and you're in survival mode, you're not even thinking about living tomorrow. So you have no goals. You have no dreams. You have no purpose in life. And when God heals, he restores that. So he said, unwrap their vision and start serving it. And that's how the ministry started. That's how it started. That's how it started. Now, now I want to fast forward to... um, 
kind of how it how where it's at today. And so there's a couple mile markers along the way. Um, one of them being Coney's number two. Talk to us about that story. Yes. So in our house of prayer, which had started in my living room, and now we moved it to a, a, a local centralized place in the town. We rented a big building in the marketplace. People pour into that community uh, a house of prayer, still do every day, two to 400 people for two hours a day praying for revival. So as we were praying in that house of prayer for Joseph Coney himself to be saved, after the war stopped, he was pushed out of northern Uganda, went into South Sudan for a while, and then in Congo and Af- Central Africa Republic. And so we're praying for his salvation. And um, that didn't happen, but all the LRA started getting disarmed, disarmed, and uh, and then coming out of the out of the bush, and uh, and getting radically saved. Um, so Joseph Coney had um, abducted almost thirty to fifty thousand children, plus many adults, and these were key people that he used in his militia. He took them through uh, witchcraft, demonic initiation into his army after walking them by foot two days into Sudan. And that's where he did his initiations. And he was fed with all of his military weapons from the Arabs in, in Northern and Khartoum and so forth. So, um, so they were really kind of siding with Kony. And uh, Kenneth Banya had an interesting story because he was a trained UPDF, which is Ugandan military jet pilot fighter in Israel. And he'd been trained there, and he fought as a as a pilot and a fighter pilot for the Ugandan army for 20 years. And Kony captured him and abducted him. Now, this is the power of this satanic realm to get a man that educated and brilliant and loyal to his government military, and in about 24 hours, flip his mind around to where he could do the worst atrocities of chopping people up, murdering, raping, slaughtering, maiming, you name it, and uh, and loyal to Kony. That's how strong this demonic is. And and even these kids, so they're, they're brainwashed. If you ever escape, you're going to be beaten to death, and now we own you, it's mind control, and you have to kill or be killed. And that's your choice. So Kenneth became his, Coney's right-hand general, and he was there for 20 years and probably would have died in that, except that the Ugandan government kidnapped him back. Oh, my goodness. And so when he was kidnapped back and brought back to the Ugandan side, not, not to punish him for war crimes because he'd been a victim, um, but to... To, to free him, you know, from this kind of slavery and help him get in his right mind again. By that time, it was his retirement. Um, so he'd had enough years and, and enough trauma. And in that period of de-traumatization after returning to the Ugandan side, he came to our house of prayer because he's a northerner. He's an Acholi. And these are all Acholi killing Acholi. And so he walked into our house of prayer. He got radically saved and transformed and discipled. And um, talk about uh, passionate, violent, spiritual warfare, militant-minded man. He knew the battle on both sides now. And he taught us more about how the enemy works and how to combat him in prayer, 
because the Bible says you, if you want to spoil the goods or rob somebody's house, you got to bind the strong man. Well, what's the strong man over areas? Daniel 9 and 10 says he prayed and fasted and, you know, Michael and Gabriel came and bound the prince of the power of the air over Persia and Greece. And when the strong man is bound, well, in that story, Israel was released. And so how do we see the strong man in spiritual warfare bound over regions so God can just move in? and begin healing a land. And so the both parts are necessary. Move God in and the devil has to move out. And that kind of became our motto. So Kenneth Kenneth became one of our great lead intercessors for years and 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 I think still he's still part of our team, but now he's um he's doing some work in military training. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> so, so you <laughs> Carol, Carol, Carol. So much <laughs> So, so now that you know, like what's going on kind of behind the curtain yes. of the enemy yes. and, um, and this general has, has instructed you and, and shared after this radical conversion, are, and this kind of gives you the audacity to put the, the gas, put the foot, your foot on the gas even more and go, go after it. So talk to us because spiritual warfare isn't talked about much here, even though I think it's very obvious, you know, like you mentioned, uh, demonic activity within drugs like heroin and things like that. And I, I think that's a hundred percent a correct mm-hmm. way to look at a lot of, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a lot of that, those addictions. And, um, but I think for you to go, okay, uh, seeing the spiritual warfare and choosing to put your armor on and, and go after it, walk us through, I mean, you don't need to, <laughs> this doesn't need to be like a, <laughs> like campfire scary stories, but talk to us about what's that was like for you, seeing firsthand some of this demonic stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, darkness was very, very deep, and but the Lord was teaching us how to pray. For example, when I went to Sudan, we started spiritual mapping. Whenever we spiritual map and we go, get a map of the region, where's the darkest, most demonic, slaughtering, murdering, human sacrifices, guns are firing, warring tribes, you know, bloodshed. There, You know, how many souls can we bring to Lucifer? I mean, that's exactly how they think. All babies dedicated to Satan at birth. And so when I see that, we go on a place first and we do spiritual mapping. Is there any light in this area? Has there ever been? And then what's the darkness? You know, what are the, the strongest, most darkest things happening here? And then we ask God for strategies and how to pray and mobilize and strategize are the two words he gives me. So mobilize the body of Christ, begin um, fasting and praying. That's a great atomic bomb, you know, in the spirit. Revelations 12, 12 says the devil has pulled out all the stops because he knows his time is short. If he has, why shouldn't we? And, you know, if we had the spirit of ISIS, we would have already won the world for Jesus. Yeah. You know, so so, so we, if we think that we're just going to sit still and protect the ground of Gulu now where God had already moved in, we've already lost territory because the devil's advancing rapidly and not sleeping. And so we know that we're in a battle. At first time I said, God, I don't want to fight. No, 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 no. I'm a peacemaker. I don't like conflict. And he goes, sorry, honey, you were born on a battle zone. And that man in America, every one of us is born on a battle zone. And if we don't learn how to fight a fight of faith, then we will, we will be fought and we will be destroyed. So that's why God is called a man of war. 
That's why he said, I give you weapons that are not carnal. That's why he said, I seat you with me in heavenly places and I'll put the enemy under your feet. I disarmed the enemy, made a show of him openly. Here's the weapons of your warfare. Here's your suit of armor in Ephesians 6, you know. It's full of it in the word. Look at all the Old Testament. It's battle strategies, you know, and every one of them teaches us a lesson. So we can't be ignorant of the enemy's wiles. I'm not fascinated by him and I'm not fearful of him, but I sure better know him. Because that battle we're fighting there is like America learning terrorism, which is very different than World War II. They studied strategies of how to combat terrorism. So we need to know the regions and areas we're in and what weapons to use and what strategies. And it comes totally from, from being totally dependent on the captain of the hosts of the armies of heaven. He's our commander. And so... I said, God, this is going to take an army to take a nation. He said, exactly. I called you to raise up an army. And I'm not even a military person, but I'm learning strategies real fast. And I said, where do I get an army from? Caves and graves. He said, David got his men out of caves. And he said, and I'm going to take you to graves. And he said, and you're going to prophesy over Ezekiel 37. Mm -hmm. That was an army. But you know why they were dead? They lost their hope. So he said, just begin praying and uh, unwrap grave clothes, begin healing the brokenhearted. That's the army. He gets his, his, his army out of the outcasts and the broken. Look at Micah 4, the, the lame, the crippled, the blind. And I said, you mean I can take broken, devastated widows who have just watched nine children decapitated and I can use John Maxwell leadership training? You know, and the word of God to equip them and empower them. And they're our greatest leaders today. He said, the word is universal. And if we have war in, in Africa, we have war here. And if we have strategies in Africa, we have strategies here. It's, if the Great Commission is good for the Western world to go into all the world, the Great Commission is good for Africa. Go into all the world. And they're learning that. So we have to realize in America, we were born on a battle zone. And we're in the same war. The devil wears different clothes here. And he deceives differently. But here we drug things. We diagnose it. And we put it in institutions. But over there, the demon-possessed naked man full of legions of devils is running naked in the graveyard, just like he was when Jesus found him. And we have those all over the place. So the satanic is just out in the open. And everybody knows the spirit realm. And so we go to the Satanists and the witch doctors, man, you're going to make that best missionaries there ever been. You're <laughs> just on the that? wrong side of the line. What do they say to so that? So they go, get out of here, you know, whatever. But we, they're, sa- they're getting saved rapidly. They're getting saved. And so because we saw so much healing and deliverance and the power of God manifested in our house of prayer, Luciferic agents coming in to destroy prayer because Coney confessed to his right-hand general, Kenneth, when did they pray in the stadium? And Kenneth told him the week we were praying, and he goes, oh, that's the week I lost my power. (laughs) He was totally disarmed, and he acknowledged it. We have no idea as believers the power we have to disarm the devil when we're on our knees. And, And Kony acknowledged it, and that's when he left Uganda, and he's not been back. So every agent that he sends in is assigned to our house of prayer to destroy it, because if he can destroy prayer... He can weaken the opposing army and then overtake them. And that's, that's the way with our personal lives. If he can destroy prayer, if he can destroy prayer in a church, 
He's rendered us powerless. So they come in to destroy the house of prayer and they get saved. So then we were known. How many many of these people are there? Oh, thousands. He's trained witch doctors and agents and whatever. And they're getting saved so fast. Now they're hard to find. You can't find any on the, on the other side very often. And as soon as we do, we go after them. Yeah. We move right into the region. And uh, for example, we developed a reputation in that whole area that the uh, House of Prayer did as 911 spiritual emergency. So every time there was a spiritual onslaught, tribal war, bloodshed, they called House of Prayer. Yeah. And in those early days, I got a call from a chief and he goes, we have these demonic fires falling. Now, everything I see, I think, is this really true? I can't believe this. But now I believe anything. And I go to the word and I say, can I find this in the Bible? And I find everything I see in the Bible somewhere. So there's something in the Bible about strange fires. I thought, oh, so this leader called me from another camp, 45,000 people in this camp. And he says, we have these demonic fires. Can your God help us? That's what they always say. Can your God help us? This is straight out of the Old Testament. Yes. Uh, Mount Carmel showdowns, literally. And so we get asked, there's there's drought. There's no rain. Kids are dying. Can your God help us? Yeah. What are you going to say? Can he bring rain? Yeah, he can bring rain. Show me. And so we go up and God shows, I could tell you some more stories about that. But anyway, this particular case, the chief is saying these fires are falling and it's burning huts, all these grass roof huts, thousands of them in the IDP camps. And when the strange fire, like spontaneous combustion falls from the sky on one hut, it implodes, impedes on itself and doesn't burn any roof around it. But normally, a natural fire will take off 2,000 roofs like a prairie fire. Right. And so I thought, this is really strange. Is it true? Let's go. So I go out to the village. Can your God help? Sure, he can help. I don't even have a clue what he's talking about. Sure, yeah, yeah. I never say no. God can do anything. So I said, tell me. And he has a paper stack of papers this high on his desk. He said, these are all we're reporting and documenting. Fire falls spontaneously and terrifies the people. So they take their mattress on their back and their cooking utensils when they go out and try to dig for food because they don't know if their their house is going to be the next one that have been burned in. It's just a little mud hut, grass roof. And he said it's falling on the clothing of children and burning them and bags of food. I said, what in the, when did this start? He said, when Coney released his disciples in our camp and they began doing the work, this, 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 and he went on to tell me what. And then he said, the threats came from Coney that they would not stop this activity until we offered the most beautiful girl as a sacrifice in the middle of the camp to the, to the demons. And if we did, then they would stop these fires, and we refused to. So this has gone on for six months, and it's getting worse. So I thought this isn't really true. So I went and got believers, and I said, we'll be back here on Sunday. I said, are there any Christians in this place? We found a handful. And so we were there on a Sunday and I divided them up and I said, you go here, you go, listen to the believers and let's see if these stories are true. We match the stories. I'm walking with two other pastors down. I watch it in front of my eyes. A spontaneous flame fall from the sky and hit the roof, shrieking that's blood curdling. They're terrified. I walk up to it, no charcoal, no cigarettes. I said, this thing is true. We went back to town, fasted for three weeks. I mobilized the town of Gulu to fast for three weeks for our, bro- for our brothers and sisters, 45,000, under this kind of demonic attack. And after three weeks, I said, 
Only those who have fasted three weeks are going to go. I rented a cattle truck, and I put 70 people in a cattle truck. I said, we're going to go sleep in that camp until the camp is set free. So we spent one week. I got those 70. I said, you guys go over here where the human sacrifices are being made. Repent. You guys go find every witch doctor in the town. I want them saved. You guys go door to door. You guys go find all the children. You guys go. And then every evening we're going to gather here and do open air crusade. And they closed the schools because there's 50 to 100 children in demonic activity. Grand mall seizures like Matthew 17, the little boy who threw himself into the fire. And so... You get a hundred of those children, they're biting, they're kicking, they're drawing blood, they're damaging themselves. They can't have school, even in the village, school closed down. So we went there for one week. In that one week, five witch doctors were saved, 200 children dedicated to Jesus. We broke the, the covenant with Satan, started a church, baptized, all demonic fire stopped, and we set free Pray through prayer about a hundred of those children in grand mal seizures. Opened the school, started a Bible school, planted a church, did all the water baptism. The communities transformed. Never again was there another fire. Oh my goodness. And that's after one week. This is the neat thing. About a month later, the next camp calls me. Can your God stop these fires? We're having the same thing. So you know what I did? I said, yes, he can. Let me call my brothers in Anaka. They'll be right over <laughs> so to you help just you. commission them. I commissioned them. Yeah, yeah. I said, go give what you've received. That's how you know it's fruit that remains when fruit bears fruit. That's right. That was exciting to me. Carol, that's the most exciting thing I've ever heard in my life. You have a quote about fruit that I want to, where, where is it? It's in my notes here. It says uh, there's ripe versus rotten fruit, and you, you say the way to tell is to, to smell your fist. Do you want to you want to share a little bit more about what those you mean are by that? probably two sayings. Oh, those mixed are two. Together. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. The right the fruit comes from John four thirty six, where Jesus said, "Lift your eyes to the fields; yeah. it's white." That means it's ripe right now. Right under our noses is ripe fruit. And that's everywhere. Yeah. Okay. But we have to know, we have to have a passion to go after it. If something is ripe today, a farmer knows that if he doesn't get his weed in before it rains, he's lost it. And he's not going to be dumb enough to lose it. Right. So he's going to get it in. We're not getting to the fruit fast enough. It's rotten tomorrow. And we're losing it. That's how huge the harvest is in these nations. Now, the fish smell like smoke. Jude 23 says, pull them out of the flames. Okay. One missionary said one time, we'll go to hell and back if you hold the ropes. And we'll go into the flames and pull them out. But somebody needs to hold the rope. So we've kind of adopted that, that, that little yeah. saying. And I, and I said that, you know, I said, we're, we're going down into the flames. We'll go to hell and back if somebody hold the ropes. And one lady said to me, well, you just go on to hell and we'll hold the ropes. And I said, well, we're only going down far enough to pull them out. And so I challenged our Bible school students. I said, smell your fist. Yeah. And if it doesn't smell like smoke, you're not living close enough to hell. Wow. One missionary found me in the early days over there through World Vision and still called me that crazy white lady. So all the government officials brought any visitor to my house to see me. And she said to me, I've been to China, India, the worst poverty, Mongolia, the most dangerous places of poverty and extreme all over the world. She said, and I have never in my life seen anybody live so close to hell as you live. And I said, 
Diane, that's the greatest compliment you I'll could say. ever give me. Because I said, that's exactly where the church is to be planted. That's right. If we move to our safety and comfort zones, we can never reach the hurting. Wow. Psalm 91 has been important to you. Um, could you explain why? Yes, because when I get in the car going past big, big militia, you know, and on roads that civilians are not supposed to be on, and I'm in my little land cruiser full of people, and I know that there's been ambushes ahead of me or there's ambushes behind me, which is very typical in most journeys I go on. Anybody in the car, and I usually have a team with me or taking food or Bibles or, or doing a, a Bible school ahead of me, I say, get out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 91. And when we get out the Bible and we begin reading, I say, this isn't just prayer and worship. I said, this is our dwelling place, our living place, our security, and our refuge. It is our weapon. It's not a choice. And so I can remember we read Psalm 91. And one, one time we read Psalm 91 for three hours over and over, didn't see another vehicle, just soldiers and militia. And so now usually I'll say, open up to Psalms. And I said, start with chapter one, and we'll go all the way through 150 chapters while we're driving. And what, and sometimes the team will say, do we have to keep reading, mom? Can we just stop? I said, absolutely not. You keep reading until we reach our destiny. And when I went in just, a, just last year to the middle of the South Sudan, which was named by BBC as being the most volatile nation in the world, after we finished a national prayer gathering of 77 hours, God said to me, do you believe what you just prayed? Ask me for a nation. I said, sure. He said, then go get him. I said, go get who? I already lived in South Sudan. And he said, go get and go into the very center of the most volatile tribe in South Sudan, which are the Merle people. They kill everything that moves from a bird to a car to a person, just the same. And drove 18 hours through off-limit zones by UN and US embassy into the middle and the heart of the Merlai people and never stopped reading the Bible <laughs> for 18 hours and pulled in at 10 o'clock at night in the UN. The only thing we could find open was a little UN post. And he said, you did not just come those roads. I said, yes, we did. He was, I said, he, he, he asked me, who was your security? I said, we had all the armies of heaven protecting us. And he just looked at me like I was insane. This is the UN official. So, but that's what we travel under, live under. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. I, I love that. Um, so Carol, you're what Watchman Nee would call an ordinary Christian, but in, in our culture, I would say you're not an ordinary Christian, obviously after hearing these stories. Um, can you help us make what's normal to you, um, I guess, practical in our lives. Maybe for the church in the West, what would you say to help just prod us and, and help us see the things that you see in our everyday lives? What, what are some practices that we can start with? The first thing is, is prayer. And prayer has to be a foundation of our lives. And I know in this culture and the busyness, it's sometimes optional. And for survival, if we're serious about taking the nation and the kingdom by force, which God said, my kingdom suffers violence. You're going to have to take it by force. 
And so we have the force of prayer and the force of good to push out darkness. So that would be my first mobilizing. How do you, how do you pray? I, I know that sounds such like an elementary uh-huh. question, but I mean, I feel like the prayer life that you're describing is different than the prayer life that I'm accustomed to here. We're accustomed a lot to communion prayer, and that's wonderful, and worship prayer and listening prayer, all of those vital. But we pray at a level of warfare prayer that sounds like a, a, a thunder in a room. When, I, when we have 20 or 40 of our staff, everybody pray, and they're fighting and binding and, you, and, binding and loosing, and they're l- using the word of God to, to come against Goliaths like sure. David did. Sure. I defy you in the name of the living God, and commanding and speaking and prophesying over valley of drop bones. When you have 50 people doing it at the same time, it's thunder in there, and they're passionate. When we pray, it's with all of our guts. Nothing's worth doing if you're not going to do it with all your heart. (laughs) And that includes prayer. (laughs) And so there's communion and there's listening. But I tell you, when it's time to fight, get up and fight. And we know what we're fighting. And we know we're fighting from a winning, from a, you know, stance of victory. And so prayer is key. And then I tell the, our staff, the men, I say, now get pregnant, get spiritually pregnant with a burden and a vision. Because if you don't conceive the burden of God, if you don't carry it and become enlarged with it, stretched, uncomfortable, ask a pregnant woman, uncomfortable with a burden from him for your nation, your city, the lost, you'll never do anything about it. Because a cold heart is not going to win the lost. The hands can only heal what the heart is willing to feel. And so I said, you carry that. And then you give birth to it in prayer. And when you do, you'll die for it. You'll die for a vision. So prayer and mobilizing prayer, which I did a lot of before I went to Africa in Oklahoma. And now I'm on many different kind of prayer lines uh, for that purpose. And targeting strategically the nation. Bind, how do we bind the strong man? What weapons? You know, what's our strategy? How do we mobilize? And we ask him that at every city, every turn. And all the prayer lines I'm on, that's what I say. And I teach spiritual warfare. But that's, that is priority mm. in America. Because you know what? God's not going to trust this harvest in our nation to a, to a prostituting bride. So if our heart is divided amongst many loves, we will not ever ever pay the price to bring a whole generation. Say, say he gives you a thousand souls today. What are, we, what are you going to do with them? They're train wrecks. These lives are train wrecks coming in and they need healing and restoration and rehabilitation and discipleship and empowering and then send them to do the same thing. And so that's a process and it's going to take the whole body of Christ together. So besides prayer then, I, I encourage people, look at your city. And ask God, what are the strongholds? Begin spiritual mapping. Find some of the dark places. I did this in Oklahoma, the darkest areas of the city, and we go out. And then, you know, I ask God for strategy. He'd give us many strategies, door to door, and, you know, just saturating places, but consistently. And, and what if the church service that was on a Sunday morning, okay, everybody come together, got to listen to another sermon. We have so much information, no, no application, so we have no transformation. But what if we decreased our 
information level and increased our application level. And Sunday looked like, let's come together like they did in the New Testament church and let's have a big prayer meeting and, and stir one another up with testimonies and then go out. And you hit the streets for two hours and that's your Sunday morning service. I mean, you know, we can take concepts like that and apply them to different times during the week. And it, but it's swimming upstream against a current, a cultural current, even in the religious world. But that's what the book of Acts is. Our, our, what we call church today looks nothing like the book of Acts. But if we decided we wanted the book of Acts and we wanted to live like that, God turned our, he'd turn our cities upside down. Acts 17, that's exactly what they did. But that's because they knew how to pay the price and pray the price. He has strategies for America, and he's after the heart of this nation. But the way to do it is he's got to get the heart of his bride. He gets the heart of his bride. The bride and the bridegroom together can accomplish anything. And he could do it without us, just like he told Esther. He said, I'm going to bring deliverance, and you can either die or you can Help me. That's what Mordecai said. You're going to die anyway, so you might as well count your life not dear for the sake of your people. And she finally took a stand. If I die, I die. This is what I'm here for. And when we decide that as believers, if I die, I die. But this is why I'm in the palace of the king. This is why I was brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's the true of every one of our lives right now where we are. Well, amen to that. <laughs> Carol, I don't know if there's anything more we need to cover. That was, I, that was uh, a lot. And I just, I want to thank you. Um, our little organization is uh, here to feature men and women such as yourself. We, we view you as a reformer, someone who's willing to posture themselves in the toughest places, who truly believes the gospel. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who believes it as much as you. And... Um, and the fruit is in your willingness to participate in some of the most broken things. So to our audience, I'm sure a lot of the stories you share sound foreign and strange, even in the Christian context, but we're so thankful for you and we're so encouraged by you. I am deeply, and uh, I'm gonna have to watch this uh, eight or nine times to hopefully glean all the wisdom and discernment you shared with us. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you too. Thank you too. God bless you.